Please read aloud with me as we confess this together. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Well, good morning. Welcome to church. Uh, my name is Matthew, one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to have you in the room or watching online. Would you join me in Matthew chapter 5? That's where we're going to be together. Uh, if you don't have a copy of scripture but maybe want to follow along digitally, you can scan the QR code that's on the screen. And it'll take you to a spot where you can follow along, read the scriptures, and even uh, take some of your own notes if you choose to do that. We've been uh, in a collection of teachings all around this idea of the King Jesus gospel, where we are looking at the gospel of the kingdom of God, how Jesus is king, and he came announcing this new way in which we are to order our lives, this new way of human living that brings flourishing about in our lives. And so he's kind of inaugurated this, and he's been teaching this, and we're kind of in one of his first sermons that he's ever really preached. Uh, it's known as the Sermon on the Mount, and we've made our way so far uh, about uh, 30 verses in, and we're going to pick up starting in verse 31 of Matthew chapter 5. It says this, you have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife unless she has been unfaithful, many translations say sexual immorality, which is the Greek word pornea, which is kind of like a, a catch-all phrase for activity out of the context of the covenant of one man and one woman. And he says, unless they've been unfaithful and cause her to commit, then, then he causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Why is it that he's only talking about women in this sense and not men in this sense being adulterers? Well, it's a great question. We'll address it here in a minute. He goes on to say this in verse 33. You have also heard that our ancestors were told you must not break your vows. You must, you must carry out the vows that you make to the Lord. But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. And do not say, oh, by the earth, I swear, because the earth is also his footstool. And don't say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great kings. Don't even say, by my own head. Uh, you can't even turn one hair white or black. Well, you can now if you buy the right box and you have a license and know how to color those things. But that was before this, and that illustration still holds true. Jesus said a simple, say a simple, yes, I will. Or a simple, no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. Let's pray. Lord, these are your words. Some seem clear and some seem confusing. 
but they are your words nonetheless. And so, Lord, as we approach your scripture, may we uh, allow ourselves to take a posture of humility. May we allow ourselves to see you clearly, Jesus. Lord, helping us to engage and be reminded of your kingdom is coming, that you are ruling and reigning, and you invite us to participate in this kingdom. So, Lord, show us the way in which we are to go so that as we go, we won't depart from your ways. We thank you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Over the close to 18 or so years of full-time ministry, I have done countless weddings. I really have stopped counting, actually. Uh, I have done, done so many wedding ceremonies, and I will tell you this with great confidence, though, there has not been a single time that when you got to the vows that they included, I do until you get fat. Not a, not a single one. Not a single one says, I do until you uh, no longer are able to blow my mind in the bedroom, and then I do no longer. It, none of them said, I do until you become less interesting than my social media feed, and then I no longer do. None of them said, I do until you no longer have the six-pack and it becomes a keg. No, no, that is not a single one of the ceremonies I've ever done have those vows been ushered. But at the same time, there have been very few wedding ceremonies that I've done where they said, I do, and I promise to never use the D word. There's been very few that I've done where that was a desired praise in their wedding vows. We don't have to look very far in our world, and you probably don't have to look very far up and down your row even to see the impact or be reminded of the impact that divorce has on our world. The impact that divorce has on individuals, on families, the impact it has in communities, We don't have to look very far to see the the gut-wrenching reality of these things. And, And so on a surface, it's pretty easy to see why maybe, just maybe, Jesus has some strong words for us on this subject. We, we may not like it, and we definitely don't know that we fully understand some of it, and, but we don't have to look very far to recognize the pain and the suffering and the damage and the destruction that often comes in the ripping apart of two souls that were one and now want to become two again. We don't have to look very far. Chances are it's impacted your family in some way, shape, or form, As of 2021, the divorce rate was 43% of those who were in marriage, 43%. Now, if you might recall, back in the early 80s, the divorce rate was around 53%. And you might like, hey, we're moving in the right direction. Except there's some clarifying understandings because fewer and fewer people are actually getting married. More and more people are choosing to not get married, and more and more people are choosing just the 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 cohabitation and living together and doing life and 
Some people are choosing not to be monogamous in any way, shape, or form. Some people are just continuing just um, to find uh, apps and ways to walk into hookup culture and continue to perpetuate and to get something, uh, some uh, quote-unquote need gratified, and then they just move on to the next opportunity. And, and, and so fewer and fewer people are actually entering into marriage, which is actually why the divorce rates are going, going down. We don't have to look very far to understand the, the damage that divorce can do on kids. Statistics tell us that father-absent homes, kids are four times more likely to be poor. Can I just point out that so are the moms? They are at greater risk for drug and alcohol abuse. They're twice as likely to commit suicide. But kids with two-parent homes are less anxious, depressed, and delinquent statistically. We don't have to look very far to see that the damage done in a community has a domino effect as it relates to the pain and the suffering and the, the reality of, of divorce. Now, I'm going to begin with the same warning that I, began, that I gave you last Sunday. Lest you begin to think incorrectly about this subject, there are three things that I need you to hold front and center in your mind as we approach these subjects today. The first one you need to keep in mind is the power of the cross. The payment that Jesus made for full and complete forgiveness and redemption of every sin. That's a great place to say amen. Number two, I, I want you to keep front and center this idea and understanding of the promise of a new creation. That when you gave your life to Jesus, you didn't just get like forgiven and be like, okay, now you can move on. No, no. You were given the very spirit of God to dwell on the inside of you, remaking you as a new creation in Christ which means that the power that you need to live out the life that he calls us to live, he already, in all of his graciousness and goodness, has given that to you. And he's here to transform. And part of that new creation is understanding a restoration of the damage done to you, in you, and through you within the creation world in which we live. And number three, I need us to keep front and center the power, the reality, the proper approach of understanding the presence of Christian and godly community. That we are a people meant to bring healing and mending to one another, with one another, walking with one another, and not throwing people out or under a bus. We need to keep front and center the right approach to godly community. Now, as we come to this text today, it's important for us to understand the context and the culture and the society into which Jesus was living and teaching and modeling this new way to be human. We cannot look at the Bible and insert our Western world to find truth. Instead, we must look at their life and the truths that were presented and recognize the principles that apply to them in their specific context and take them into our world and our life and then apply them appropriately in that way. I'm going to pause right here and let you know, if you haven't heard yet, this summer we're doing something really fun, uh, something unique that we've not really ever tried before, but um, this year we're really trying to focus in on helping us grow as disciples, and so we've decided that we're going to do something called summer school. 
at the end of June into July, we're taking five weeks, and we want to invite you to select one of two courses where you can come and learn week after week for five weeks in a row around a certain subject. We're going to have one about the Holy Spirit and gifts and uh, walking in the power of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, how do you operate in the gifts of the Spirit. We're going to look at all of those things, and it's going to be wonderful and great. And then there's another one, and, and I'm going to be teaching this one, and it's called How Not to Read the Bible. We're going to come up, and I'm going to teach you and help us understand some appropriate ways in which we can look at the Bible, read the Bible, and understand that while the Bible in its entirety is written for us, there are some specifics that were not written to us. And we're going to look, and we're going to understand how, how to get in and understand correctly how do you look in context what the Scripture is saying and not take those Scriptures out of context creating a life uncharacteristic of the life that God wants for you to live. And it's important that we do that even in our time today. There were some great disruptions that were brought about by the fall that had major consequences for the male and female relationships. Go all the way back to the beginning. And the listener of Jesus' world, as Jesus was preaching these things, would be very, very aware that in the beginning, God created man and woman. And he put them together and says, man shall leave his father and his mother, and they shall be joined together in one soul and one body and one flesh. And, and the two shall become one. And this is something beautiful and wonderful and miraculous. They, they would have remembered that, but also remembered that what happened through sin when it showed up in the world create a fracturing, a segmenting, and a distortion of God's originally design and intention of that thing. They would have that front and center in their minds. Having allowed sin to sever the primary dependency on God, men and women became respectively subject to the elements from which they had been originally made. Man became subject to the dust of the ground whence he once came, Genesis 2, 7, and, verse 3, and chapter 3 and verse 19. And woman became subject to the man from whom she had been formed, Genesis 2, 22 and Genesis 3, 16. Prior to the fall, men and women had enjoyed relationship of equality as co-sharers in the divine image and as partners in the divine mandate to exercise skilled mastery over creation, to take dominion and stewardship over the world in which they were placed. But after the fall, after sin, after the rebellion, after the mutiny, after they decided to do it on their own terms instead of listening to God on his own terms, sin shows up and it begins to fracture these relationships. And man became, began to rule over woman and woman became subject to the man. And there was this conflict of relationship that you see play out in the earliest pages of Scripture. And all throughout your life, you've probably seen it play out too. Not God's design, but the reality in which we find ourselves. See, there was a history of male domination, even in the context of marriage, where men could just decide to do however, whatever, whenever. And if at any point in time they decided that they weren't happy with the one that they chose, they would just choose a new one maybe either adding her into uh, the household or replacing her within the household, which then meant um, even though he was probably the financial one, the educated one, and the one who kind of understood society and the norms, 
uh, that meant that the woman now had zero rights, zero things, and was seen as disregarded by society. This was the reality. In fact, uh, there, there are some scholars who would say that uh, some of these even religious leaders, if, if their wife burnt the toast, out they could go. Because they had found this loophole in the law that Moses eventually wrote about and says, listen, God created marriage, but sometimes these relationships, because of the fall of humanity, these are not working out. And we need to write into the law some protection for the disadvantaged one. And so this certificate of divorce that they're talking about was a, an act of mercy and benevolence to protect the one who would have been on the underside, or the one who had been on the receiving end of malevolent action, of disgrace. And so this legal certificate that they gave was a protection for primarily women of a financial nature and social respect because now it annulled the very thing that they began as not their own, but something that that man chose to do, and now it would have freed them up to essentially remarry in another family and find provision and help and partnership again and be taken care of. But again, can I just give us some common sense for a minute? If you're not given a certificate of divorce and you're just separated and then someone goes and gets remarried, the Bible would call that adultery. And that's what Jesus is talking about. That's some of the context. Listen, friends, Jesus is not dismissing the letter of the law. He was actually reminding them of the spirit behind the law. Reminding them of the heart and the reason and the, and the desire for God. And the the purpose of God in relationships, the purpose of God. He wasn't trying to dismantle the law. No, no, he was reminding them of the spirit behind the law. This is how Baker's Bible Encyclopedia talks about this particular text. It says this. It says, not only did Jesus reaffirm the validity of the one flesh union for the community of redemption, but the New Testament reinforced the inviolability of the marriage bond by defining it as an earthly copy of the relationship between Christ and the church. Despite such strong sanctions of the permanency of the marriage bond, the New Testament does permit divorce as an exception intended to protect the innocent spouse in the case of immorality and desertion. In other words, somebody just ups and leaves and decides to do something different or ups and kicks you out because they're not happy. Desertion. Abandonment. Jesus made exceptions that established the right of a spouse wronged by an unfaithful mate for, to press for divorce. Obviously, the wrong spouse has the option of maintaining the marriage bond despite the breach of commitment by the unfaithful mate. But in view of this exception allowed by Scripture, the obligation to maintain or reinstate the disrupted, uh, allowed, uh, disrupted marriage may not be imposed upon the innocent spouse. The other exception that justifies divorce according to the New Testament is desertion. Although the provisions of 1 Corinthians 7 verse 15, which we'll read here in a minute, refer primarily to the desertion by an unbelieving spouse, it should be noted that a believer guilty of desertion is to be treated as an unbeliever. It's in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8. 
behavior equivalent to the abandonment of the marriage relationship constitutes a breach of conjugal commitment and becomes subject to the provision stated in 1 Corinthians 7. In either case, adultery or desertion, the aggrieved party has the right to seek the divorce from the offending spouse and, having obtained it, become again a single person. Should repentance and reconciliation fail to restore the violated union, the aggrieved spouse is not bound to the marriage. According to Scripture, a person who is not bound is free to remarry, but only in the Lord, quote-unquote, meaning to another Christian believer. The injunction for a single person who does not have the gift of celibacy to marry applies to a person formerly married, but who has become single by a scripturally legitimate divorce. In keeping with Christ's teachings in Mark 10, verse 11 and 12, and Luke 16, 8, the remarriage of believers may not be approved when the divorce has been used as a means of changing mates, since such intent makes the divorce adulterous. Jesus is getting back to the heart of why we enter into these covenant relationships to begin with. And he's cutting back to the heart of the pain and the understanding and and trying to get us to realize your selfishness, if you don't deal with it, can be self-destructive and destructive to other people. Jesus is trying to help us remember the reason. Hear, Hear me very, very clearly. God had a plan for the marriage union. And we want to go back and understand what was God's plan anyways. Because if we don't understand his plan originally, we won't walk out the purpose of it today. Part of God's plan for marriage was that it would be a partnership, a a companionship, a a fellowship of, of mutuals together moving in God's direction. It would be a means of provision for one another. It would be a means of children being born and then raised in a family with kingdom ethics and priorities. God's design for the families that that they would flourish within a community demonstrating neighborly love not only in their home but to the homes of the people around them as well. God's plan for marriage was that it would be a picture of Christ's love for the church. I want to pause and help us understand something. There are two institutions that God initiated throughout Scripture and throughout our world. The church and the family. Both were organized by God and ordained by God. There are structures. There is order. There are distinctions. And there are purposes to both. But the church and the family were both designed by God to be a picture demonstrating something incredibly important. And wherever we have done damage to either one of those institutions, either one of those organized structures, anywhere we have seen damage or done damage, the kingdom of God shows up through the gospel and it upends any distortion or damage in the view of these things. And... In the case of marriage and family, the gospel shows up and upends any distorted and damaging views of of patriarchy that were unhealthy, that were abusive, that weren't right. And God's answer to abusive uh, powers, to abusive authority, to uh, perverse uh, applications of structures 
is not to eliminate the structure, but to redeem it and bring his spirit back into it and helping us live it out. Friends, wherever we find inequality in our world, Jesus would go out of his way to redeem it and reveal a new way forward every single time. This was his heartbeat. Friends, I think we have to sit and be honest enough because we have a way in our world when things become painful to us to diminish or dismiss them as, as it's not that big of a deal. I think that's just buying into another lie, to be honest. Want everybody to take a deep breath? Let it out. Now hear me very clearly. Divorce is not a part of God's plan. It wasn't what he wanted. It wasn't his intention. The fact that Moses, God led Moses to create a certificate of divorce, though, hear me, it was an act of mercy for the one who would become disadvantaged because of someone else's decision. Divorce grieves God, and it grieves us. It's true, Jesus is not a fan of divorce. And, and there would be many people who would use this passage from Jesus as a bullying tactic to demean, to bring about legalism, and to do damage to those who have walked through divorce. And if that's where you think I'm coming from, just stop and turn yourself around because that's not where I'm coming from. Friends, it is true, Jesus is not a fan of divorce, but just because he's not a fan of something in our lives and in our world doesn't mean he doesn't act with mercy, and it doesn't mean that he doesn't provide a way forward out of the pain of divorce. Just because he's not a fan of it doesn't mean he doesn't give you a redeemed way forward from it. We cannot, hear me friends, we cannot in our world Take the issue of divorce lightly. If we take it lightly, we will begin to create loopholes of selfishness that lead us into what the Bible calls lawlessness. Living as if we can do whatever we want, whenever we want, and there is no higher law other than how I feel in this moment. That's dangerous. At the same time, we cannot take the issue of marriage and divorce legalistically. Otherwise, we will suffocate the life right out of the marriage that God wanted to bless us with. In the book, Rediscovering Scripture's Vision for Women, theologian and historian Lucien Pepiot says this, says husbands are called into a one-flesh union with their wives where, there are, where they are to renounce their own family ties and are to love their wives as they love their own bodies. Christian men have wives who are members with them of one body in which Christ is the head of all. In a context where authority, ownership, hierarchy, and an imbalance of power was the norm, the Christian church redefined the role of the Christian husband in relationship to his wife, enjoining him to take seriously the responsibility that he was to nurture, cherish, protect, and empower her in the faith. 
Christian marriage was intended to be a position for women of ultimate security and dignity. If the husband is the head in an uh, analogy sense to Christ, as Christ is the head, he lays down his life in order to raise his wife up like Christ did. He behaves to her as Christ behaves to her, as one who confers love, loyalty, dignity, status, honor, and power. He is the lifter of her head. He is not a head that needs to be covered for fear of shame. No, a woman finding herself married to a Christian man in one of Paul's churches like a Gentile or a slave should have had the disorienting experience of being treated as an equal. Not only this, but unlike many of the pagan husbands around them, she would find that her husband had committed himself to be faithful, binding himself to her for life in covenant love, loving her as he loves his own body, recognizing her gifts and potentials as a co-heir of the grace and life and working to see uh, all that fulfillment in an an analogy-like fashion to the way we are nurtured and empowered by Christ who above all is our loving Savior. Friends, here's what she's trying to get out and help us understand that the understanding of biblical marriage was a completely revolutionary idea to the pagan world in which Jesus was walking and living. When Paul was writing this understanding of love in Ephesians and in 1 Corinthians, he was helping us understand that marriage is pointing us to a larger story. That story is Jesus' covenant relationship with the church. Marriage points us to this covenant. The church points us back to the family. And both are meant to point us to an understanding of deep covenant with God. Marriage is a covenant vow. We're not real familiar with covenants. We think in terms of contracts in our Western world, don't we? We have an agreed upon thing and we've got this contract down and so I keep my end, you keep your end and if you keep your end and I keep my end, we can continue in the relationship. That's not biblical covenant. A covenant is a relationship. Covenant relationships are at the heart of God and the perspective of the kingdom of God. A covenant is based on trust between two parties while a contract is based on distrust between the parties. A covenant is based on unlimited responsibility while a contract is based on limited liability. A covenant cannot be broken if new circumstances occur while a contract can simply be violated or voided rather by mutual consent. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul expounds on this understanding of marriage. And he says this. Now regarding the question you asked in your letter, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. But because there is so much sexual immorality in our world, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. Pause. Why would Paul write that? Because they were not in their pagan understanding living the way that God intended for husbands and wives to live. They were doing whatever they wanted, whatever would make them happy. That's what they did. They wanted more male partners. They had more male partners. They wanted to add more women to the fold. They added more women to the fold. The more the merrier. And if you're not married, get a new one. This was their perspective. He says this, verse 3, 
Husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. We could just sit and meditate on that for a little bit, but we're not going to. Let me just say a reminder, what you do with your body impacts your spirituality. Keep that truth in mind as you understand what Scripture is saying. He goes on to say, hey, um, don't deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you could give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command, but I wish everyone were single just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. But for those who are married, I have a command that comes from me, but not for, for, for me, but not the Lord. A wife must not leave her husband, but if she does leave him, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him, and the husband must not leave his wife. In other words, Paul is trying to give us some pastoral perspective on how we apply our understanding of the heart behind the covenants and the laws that we are trying to abide by in the kingdom of God. He says, now I speak for the rest of you, though I don't have a direct command from the Lord. If a fellow believer has a wife who is not a believer, she is willing to live with him, he must not leave her. And if a believing woman has a husband who is not a believer and she is willing to continue with her, he must not leave him. Why, why is this what Paul is trying to say? What, what are we trying to get at here? Paul is trying to remind us that a relationship built on a covenant of God is not about selfishness. It's about serving one another. It's about serving one another. And he's using the illustration of, of your own sexuality and within the covenant of marriage. In other words, he's like, hey, y'all ought to be doing it a little bit more often or praying a whole lot more. <laughs> Prayer is good. We ought to pray. The other is good. And we ought to give God praise. The point in all of it, though, is that when you are in a covenant relationship, you're supposed to take the posture of serving one another rather than being selfish for your own sake. When we live selfishly, we look for loopholes and end up living lawlessly. But when we serve, we not only fulfill the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law is abided by and it creates an opportunity of flourishing. The Greek word used by Jesus and by Paul in this text, or in these texts that we looked at today, is a word that we write as divorce. Or in some translations, they use the word divorce. In some translations, though, they use the word separate. And we're, the translators are just trying to convey the importance of what is happening. But the Greek word, A-P-O-L-Y-O, apolio, 
simply means to release, let go, or separate from. In Corinth, when Paul was writing, it was an issue of people were just not happy and they were abandoning their responsibility and their covenant to go do something more fulfilling. They were deserting families. Jesus was coming along saying, you have found some selfish loophole. And instead of serving your, your spouse, you're just like, well, I'm just going to give her a certificate and I'm going to move on. I'm free. She's like, that's... That's not the point. You're missing it. This is meant to be something so much more satisfying and fulfilling than a selfish, humanistic understanding of what you're experiencing. I'm going to cover the subject of vows next week I keep trying to move faster through the book of Matthew because I keep looking at how there's 28 chapters and like man it'll be 2023 welcome to Matthew chapter 15 and we're like not gonna get there very quick and if I'm um, and if I'm real honest I'm afraid that everybody's gonna get real bored with the gospel of Matthew and be like ah let's go find something else that's more interesting but you know what as we'll talk about next week, those are some lies and inner vows that you make yourself thinking that you need to perform or do something bound by your own strength and you don't have the strength to make a vow and that's why Jesus said stop trying to make your vows and your covenants based on yourself. We'll get to that next week, which will give me plenty of time this week to like shed more tears. Y'all, I've been bawling all morning. Because some of these truths are so crucial to understand and, and the misunderstanding of these truths have done so much damage. So much damage to people in the body of Christ. And these inner vows that we make create so much damage in your own life. You gotta come back next week to hear about them. Let me just say it this way. When it comes to your body, when it comes to your life, when it comes to your relationships, submit to the authority of Jesus. When it comes to your relationships, when it comes to your marriage, when it comes to being a part of the family of God, submit to the authority of Jesus and serve other people. Serve each other. Serve each other. This is what the Apostle Paul is trying to get at in our relationships of, of what we're doing and where we're going, and, and God designed it this way, and, and it's in these things, and, and just, just move in this direction. But, but I also feel like I just... Let me say this too. So, this is like a Rubik's Cube of like landmines I'm trying to navigate around this morning. I believe that abandonment and this desertion of walking away from a covenant that somebody has, I think falls into the category of abuse too. Because someone has decided to leave their vows and their covenant. 
I'm in no way, shape, or form trying to present this idea of come hell or high water, no matter the damage done in your heart. Nah, you better not say the D word. The, re the reason certificates of divorce were a thing was because God looked down in an act of mercy and said, I've got to provide a way forward. But we in our selfishness have used that mercy and thrown it back at God and created our own selfish ideology of what it means. And Jesus is dismantling that for us today too. On one hand, it's this. And on the other hand, it's this. It's both and, friends. Let me read one verse and then we'll stand and take communion. Actually, go ahead and stand and start opening your communion cups because it's, it's time. Colossians 3 says this. You can go ahead and open them up. It, it, the noise won't bother me one bit. Since God chose you to be holy people that he loves, you must clothe yourself with tender-hearted mercy, with kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowances for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. That'll save half your marriages right there. Is it easy? Nope. Is it worth it? Yup. And you don't have to do it on your own because you've been clothed with Christ. It's his spirit in you that allows you to do that. Let me prove it to you. Remember, the Lord forgave you. He forgave you. You who broke his covenant. You who walk away in sin. You who act selfishly. We who act selfishly. The Lord forgave you, so forgive others. Above all, clothe yourself with love which is the bond which binds us all together in perfect harmony. This is oath language. This is a vow language. This bonding is vow language. Love which binds us together in perfect harmony and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, we are called to live in peace. Always be thankful. It is the love of God that we have received that binds us together with Christ that allows us to live out a love towards someone else. And when we allow the love of God to fill us and flow from us, it helps strengthen the bond of the relationships that we're in. The answer is to allow the love of God to grow more and more in your own heart. So Lord, here we are at the table acknowledging that uh, we are not good at loving people this way, but God, you are really good at loving people this way. You are patient, you are kind. And Lord, while we were still sinners, while we were still rebellious, walking away from the covenants and the ways of God, Lord, you sent your son to die for us. And so as we stand here, God, we recognize that we're standing here 
as an act of your own mercy even. Lord, we realize we're standing here with the bread and the juice in our hand. Lord, as we stand here with the bread and juice in our hand, we ask that you would help us to just recommit to receiving your love and giving your love. Lord, this week, help us to be clothed like Christ and act like a servant and serve the people around us with kindness and tenderness and love, expecting nothing in return, just serving because we're submitting to your authority in our life, Jesus. We thank you for it. Thank you for your body, which brings healing to our bodies. We take it, reminding us of our covenant with you. Let's take the bread together. And Lord, now as we take this juice that represents your blood poured out, which brings forgiveness for us, and God, we remember that we need forgiveness too. And it's your forgiveness that leads us and empowers us to forgive others. We receive this in faith too. Let's take the juice together. We thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I'm going to give us a benediction here in just a minute but just hang on to your cups as you exit you'll be able to take those I just want to say that if you need prayer I mean our team they'd love to just pray with you maybe this hit home in a a fresh way we just want to pray with you maybe you're walking through something completely different and you're like man I I just need some prayer man they'd love to they'd love to pray with you for those of you that are married every day this week can I challenge you Just ask your spouse, what's one thing I can practically do just to serve you today? Just ask that one question each day this week. And let's practice serving one another. Let's see how the Spirit grows in us and in our homes. Father, I pray a blessing over your people. Lord, you love us dearly, and we know it. So, Lord, would you bless us and keep us? Would you make your face shine on us and be gracious to us? Would you lift your countenance towards us and give us your peace? Lord, we pray these things in the name of the Father who loves us, the Son who died for us, and the Holy Spirit who abides and empowers and lives in us, we pray. And the people of God said, amen. Hey, friends and family, I hope today's message was life-giving for you. I want to ask you to take a next step and go ahead and click the subscribe button so you never miss another chance to have an encounter with God. And while you're at it, take another step and share it with a friend. Maybe post it on your social network or text a coworker the link. And when you do that, you are partnering and get to be a part of seeing faith come to life in them. Hey, if Faith Church has made an impact in your life, if these messages are helping you gain traction in your faith, would you consider partnering with us financially? When you do that, it helps us widen our reach so that more people can have an encounter with the real Jesus. You can find information and ways to give on our central hub, faithchurchks.org. If if you live in the Southeast Kansas region, we'd love to see you in person at one of our Sunday services. You can find those times on our hub as well, faithchurchks.org. Hey, remember this, God is for you and we love you.